welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. You are listening to Latin Ways. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson. I am delighted this morning to be joined by Raul Burbano. He is the director of Common Frontiers. Thank you for joining us, Raul. Thank you very much for having me, Sylvia. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, it has been almost two years of aggression, both politically, financial, economic, and even in some ways military aggression towards Venezuela. And particularly, what is most alarming has been the sanctions, even in the midst of pandemic. Can we talk a little bit about the significance and the impact this has had? Sure. So the aggression against uh, Venezuela has been going on for decades now, both by the U.S. and Canadian governments, politically, economically, as you mentioned. But since you know, 2014, 2015, the U.S. has imposed over 150 unilateral um, sanctions against Venezuela, and Canada has followed suit and other countries as well, European countries. And, you know, originally some of those sanctions were, for example, against individuals. But, you know, as time has gone on, we, we've seen an oil embargo on Venezuela. And now there's basically, you know, the country is, has a complete embargo on it, a blanket ban on, on all dealings with Venezuela. So this has obviously crippled the Venezuelan economy. We're, we're talking about a country that, you know, the majority of its revenue came from oil exports. And we see, you know, due to the sanctions, due to the oil embargo, due to, you know, everything that's going on against Venezuela economically anyways, that, you know, the production of, of oil in Venezuela has plummeted, you know, to historical lows. If we compare in 2017, you know, uh, Venezuela was producing about 2 million barrels of oil, shipping them and, and, and getting the revenue to buy, you know, goods for, for people, for medicine, to food. To today, they're, they're shipping a low of about 330,000 barrels a day. So the revenue of Venezuela has dried up severely, and that's predominantly because of U.S. sanctions. And obviously, the impact on people has been, you know, tremendous. I haven't been there since 2018, so I can just talk about when I was there last time, but from, you know, obviously it's from shortages of food to inability of the government to purchase a medicine on an international level. Uh, you know, lots of people have died due, due, due to the sanctions uh, reports from, from the U.S. Uh, institutions from the U.S. Have, have, have pegged it at, you know, anywhere between 20 to 30,000 people have died directly related to the sanctions because the Venezuelan government can't access whether it's medicine, whether it's food, uh, basic necessities for people in Venezuela. So it's been very difficult for Venezuela uh, economically, politically, and socially for, you know, for, for the last couple of years at least anyways. What Venezuela is proposing was a socialism for the 21st century. Why is this um, so threatening and so, and at the same time, so inspiring for the people? For sure. I think the, the main reason why it's been so threatening for, for the hegemonic powers, Canada, the Europeans, uh, the U.S., is predominantly because the, the economic model that, you know, the, the Bolivarian Revolution under Chavez and, and Maduro today have espoused, as you mentioned, is more of a sort of a socialist, uh, communitarian vision of the world, which challenges the neoliberal sort of capitalist model, which, you know, has been imposed by Canada and the U.S. and the Western world, you know, across the globe. Uh, it has displaced 
at least within Venezuela and to some extent in the early, you know, sort of pink tide uh, decade, you know, the early 2000 to, to 2010, when many of the left, uh, many of the countries in Latin America were under the so-called pink tide, uh, had come together under the Alba nation, led predominantly by Venezuela and, and funded uh, predominantly by the oil revenues of Venezuela. And that created sort of an alternative and a, a, a sort of a Simon Bolivar vision where, you know, uh, countries in the Latin America and the Caribbean could come together, uh, work together to eradicate, for example, illiteracy, uh, decrease inequality, uh, you know, the distribution of wealth was something that was tremendous in in Latin America under the pink tide countries, again, led under, you know, Venezuela and Hugo Chavez. And this created sort of a, a counter position to the U.S. system of neoliberal policies where we see in countries like, for example, in Honduras, uh, in Chile, where it's massive inequality. Uh, you know, people are today rising up on mass against country, you know, the government because of, of uh, you know, violence and, and lack of democracy. Often the things that they accuse Venezuela of is what the countries of Canada and the U.S. have been supporting in countries like, as I said, of Honduras and Chile, for example. And so that counterpart creates a kind of a narrative for people that, hey, there is an alternative to the neoliberal model. So the, the empire, as we call it, the U.S., Canada, the capitalist countries have said, you know, you can't allow the system to succeed because if it succeeds, then it presents an alternative. And, you know, an alternative obviously creates aspirations for many people. Um, and so, you know, they've gone forward to try to destroy the economy for the last, you know, I would say at least, you know, two decades, uh, and they've done a good job of it, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, the reality is the people in Venezuela are, are strong people, they're proud people, and that sort of sense of, you know, their indigenous culture in terms of, you know, socialism and their vision of the world, it, it can't be just taken away from them um, that easy. And people have continued to fight and struggle, for example, to ensure that, you know, the, the, the communal councils are in place, that people are participating uh, on a regular basis locally, nationally, uh, you know, statewide, wise. Um, so what we're seeing is that people are fighting for what is theirs, which is, you know, their vision of how democracy should be, which is a much more, in my opinion, participatory democracy than we have, for example, in the West, where, you know, you go to elections every, you know, four or five years. Uh, in Venezuela, people are participating in communal councils, making decisions on, you know, where locally people are spending, should be spending money, government should be spending money, what type of projects. Um, so it's a very interesting vision, but it is an alternative vision. Uh, not perfect, of course. There are challenges, there's bureaucracy, there's issues, but it is an alternative to the neoliberal model that um, was pushed under Chavez and Venezuela through the oil revenues and did create, uh, you know, sort of a, a movement. Um, in Latin America for about a, about a decade under the pink tide countries that, you know, started to counter the power of the U.S. and Canada uh, in, in Latin America. And so the revenues uh, in Latin America that, you know, from oil, mining, you know, those revenues started to stay in the countries of Latin America. We see it in Bolivia, for example, where, you know, the extraction of resources, the majority of the funds started staying in those countries as opposed to going to the multinational corporations, uh, you know, with headquarters in other countries around the world, which obviously has a big impact on, you know, capital. And I think that has been the main issue for that. And also, I mean, I can just add, I guess, to supplement some of the finance, you know, that was displaced from, from the U.S. capital technology uh, expertise, what's, what has kind of took place was that China and Russia started kind of to fill that gap. 
And geopolitically, obviously, that counts as a big problem for the U.S. They see China as a threat in the region. They see Russia as a you know, dictatorship that's a threat in the region. And so anything that the U.S. and to some a large extent Canada can do to displace Chinese and Russian capital in the region and ensure that multinational corporations, Canadian mining companies, uh, oil companies, um, you know, U.S. Co- multinational companies like Exxon, for example, um, you know, are, are reaping the benefits of the resources in Venezuela at the expense of people is, is really the kind of policies that we kind of have been following for some time now on a foreign policy perspective. You know, throughout Latin America, most people are very aware of U.S. interventions, and in particular, the years of 1974 to 1980s, um, we saw what we call the dirty wars. You know, there was a lot of invasions, there was a lot of coups that resulted in mass disappearances of people, uh, mass uh, murders. You know, we saw the, you know, the just the genocide of people in Guatemala, El Salvador. We saw the wars in Central America. And so uh, the, the idea that the U.S. will intervene if it's not in agreement with its policies is almost a given. And yet it is alarming to see with what uh, impunity these measures are conducted. What I'd like to focus on, though, is that despite their latest coup in Venezuela, attempted coup in Venezuela with the imposition of Juan Guaido as self-declared president of Venezuela and how uh, the, both the U.S. and Canada immediately, you know, stood up to, to support this uh, person, um, it's been nearly two years, and yet... Um, you know, Venezuela continues to withstand uh, and the people continue to support their government. Can we talk about the significance and both the impact that the Trudeau government uh, support behind this U.S. attack plan has had on Venezuela? Well, the, the support that Canada has given to the opposition in Venezuela has gone back for decades. So it goes beyond the liberal government of Trudeau. Uh, but Trudeau, the, the Trudeau government has definitely played a much more, uh, much more significant role at the forefront of, of politics in Venezuela. Although the Canadian government, you know, couches its criticism of, of Venezuela, you know, around human rights, lack of democracy, and that their goal is always to see a transition, a peaceful transition. That, you know, the government believes, the Canadian government believes that, you know, they want to see a peaceful transition in Venezuela. The, the reality is very different because, you know, Canada is. Uh, unapologetically supportive of the opposition at any cost. And we've seen the opposition in Venezuela that, you know, varies from, you know, moderate opposition to an extreme right-wing opposition that included, for example, participating in a failed invasion this, you know, this May just recently with U.S. Green Berets, um, you know, in the coastal town of Chihuahua. Uh, We've seen, you know, attempted assassinations against Maduro, uh, the opposition, when they took power in 2015 in the National Assembly, their goal, and they said it pretty clearly, and you know they've never denied it, is to topple the government uh, within six months. You know, uh, uh, Ramos Henry Ramos Alupes, which one of the presidents of the opposition of, of the AD party, Action Democratica, when you know he was elected president of the National Assembly, that was kind of his first goal. Is you know our goal is to topple the government within six months by any means necessary. And predominantly, that means economically by going around jet-setting around the world so that uh, countries put sanctions on Venezuela, that countries don't invest in Venezuela, 
Um, and, and Canada has been at the forefront of supporting that opposition, which in many situations has engaged in, in violence on the streets in, in Venezuela. So, it's, you know, it's really shocking and disappointing to see the Canadian government do that. But it's not unique to Trudeau or the Liberal government. It happened under Harper. You know, it, it's, it's happened for the last two decades under Canada's foreign policy. And it's really around, you know, Canada's interest in Venezuela, for one, to ensure that there is no sort of alternative, you know, socialist type of government in the region, but also Canada has a lot of interest in terms of economically. So Canada, we, we had a video presentation last week with Jorge Ariaza, who's the foreign minister of Venezuela, and, and he was talking about how he was so surprised that um, Canada's taking such a lead role to kind of cover for, for the United States under the Lima under the Lima cartel, which is the Lima group, which is, you know, a group of countries that were part of the OAS who kind of seek regime change in Venezuela. But he had mentioned very clearly that, for example, you know, Canadian oil, you know, the, through the tar sands, heavy oil is, you know, is able to displace Venezuelan oil. That, you know, Venezuelan oil is also heavy. It's the same type of crude uh, tar sands type oil that Venezuela has. It's the one that feeds all the refineries in the U.S. or had until recently have been doing that. Now Canadian oil can kind of feed that, replace uh, Venezuelan oil. He also mentioned that Crystal Lake, a Canadian gold mining company in Venezuela, which was nationalized under Chavez, you know, they, they took uh, Venezuela to U.S. appeals court, you know, suing Venezuela for $1.4 billion, which they have been awarded under, you know, international you know, tribunals, which the opposition, by many accounts, have said that if they take power, obviously they're willing to pay that type of uh, indemnification to the Canadian government, or at least to the corporation, anyways, to the corporation, sorry. And, you know, this is something that the Maduro government has flatly refused to pay just because they feel it's not, uh, you know, a bona fide, uh, you know, court case. We are in the age of pandemic, and there is a, there's a pandemic abroad, and we know that between 2017 and 2018, independent reports have shown that over 40,000 people have died from the as a result of the punitive sanctions. How is it possible that we continue to have sanctions in the midst of a pandemic? And that's a good question, and that's a question that I think we should be asking our, you know, our, the Canadian government and the international community. You know, first of all, it's important for your listeners to understand that those sanctions are unilateral, meaning that you know they're they are not sanctioned by the United Nations or by any international body. So, by and large, they are illegal because the U.S. is just imposing them randomly, and so is Canada. So they don't adhere to any international norms. Second, as you mentioned, you know these. Uh, these sanctions have a humongous impact in the government's ability to import food, medicine, for example, and, and obviously under COVID is, is really necessary. Um, so people are impacted really severely in terms of that ability. You know, with that in mind, we, you know, Venezuela and other in some countries in Latin America have fared much better with the impact of COVID than other countries, for example, than the U.S., which is, you know, what is considered a humongous superpower with, you know, the most advanced technology, uh, Venezuela has had, you know, although obviously they're suffering from COVID as well, but, you know, they've had minimal cases in relatively speaking to other countries, but sanctions has a humongous impact on food sovereignty, on the ability of the government to, to um, you know, to provide for its people the basic necessity and the international community, which is, you know, one of the biggest travesties we've seen is that has been relatively silent on that, on Venezuela, whether it's sanctions on Venezuela, 
on Nicaragua, on Iran, you know, whatever country it may be. Uh, and we see that these sanctions are predominantly a political tool, right, in order to try to, you know, whether it's regime change to punish countries that don't do what they say. But, you know, the United States has taken it even further and now it's punishing, for example, anybody who deals with Venezuela. So, you know, if an oil tanker uh, tries to, um, you know, ship oil to Venezuela, then the, the United States will impose sanctions on that country who owns that tanker. So, you know, it's making it very, very difficult for Venezuela. Economically, Venezuela is very having a very difficult situation. Uh, I don't think anybody, I don't think everybody knows the reality of Venezuela, where there has been shortages of food, where there's shortages of medicine. Um, the, the Canadian government and the U.S. government all presented as a failure of the socialist state, and I think that's you know that's part of the goal. Which the goal is, you know, we do, we make the economy scream, which is kind of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, make the economy scream. They did that in Chile in '73, as you mentioned just before the coup, in the hope that a that you know the people will rise up uh, due to obviously the economic situation, and of course it has impacted you know some of the base of, of Maduro. Of course, would say you know we we can't we don't want to support a government if we're going to be in this situation. Um, so the hope is that they will rise up and overthrow the government. It hasn't happened to date, uh, and I think it's a testament to the strong support that the people give to the government. You know, many Venezuelans that I've met, you know, can kind of see the reality that you know the U.S. is doing and the sanctions that they're doing. And although they may not, for example, in some cases support the Maduro government, they, you know, there is a sense of nationalism saying, you know what, like nobody should be telling us what to do and nobody should be forcing us who do we elect or at least imposing upon us, you know, a person by the name of Guaido who almost nobody in Venezuela knew and, you know, who pretty much all his offices are in Washington, who is financed by Washington and who takes his orders from Washington. For most Venezuelans, that's really clear. Uh, he has, you know, no base and no support in, in Venezuela. He kind of just travels around the world and kind of seen as, you know, an international darling by the, you know, the Western media. But in Venezuela, he has no support, uh, and and, that, and that's why we've seen, or at least they thought that once he proclaimed himself uh, President Juan Guaido with his sanctions, that you know Venezuelans would rise up. But Venezuelans are much shrewder and intelligent than what Americans think they are. Uh, and to date, they've continued to support uh, the Venezuelan government. They continue to struggle, even though it's a very much of a struggle. You know, you can't, we have to be honest with the situation in Venezuela. You know, there are many Venezuelans have to leave the country due to the economic uh, situation. You know, numbers vary anywhere from 2 million to up to 6 million, depending who, who you're listening to. But, you know, it's clear that, you know, there is a strong uh, economic migration from Venezuela, very similar to what we see in countries, for example, like Mexico, where, you know, due to the destruction of the economy, people have to go and seek, you know, uh, economic situations in other countries that are, are be better for them. And those are individual decisions that, you know, people have to take to protect their families, themselves, their livelihoods. Uh, and, you know, it's not something that should be condemned. But I think what's clear from our perspective is that, you know, the sanctions are the primary cause of the economic destruction of the country. They're the primary cause of, you know, the lack of food, the lack of medicine, the poverty that has increased, you know, the basic illnesses that have come back. You know, by and large, those have been a major cause of a lot of this economic situation. It's hard to say, you know, of course, there are, you know, uh, we have to also hold uh, Maduro government accountable for failures economically, politically, but it's hard to disentangle that now because of the sanctions. Because we, it's hard to say, is it more the sanctions? Is it more failed policies of the government? Uh, 
you know, I think what's clear, as you mentioned from reports from international, from anywhere from 20 to 40,000 people have died just in relation to the sanctions. I think if we ended those sanctions at the start, because they are illegal and wrong morally, uh, politically, in any, any kind of which way, then at least, you know, we could focus on dealing with the Venezuelan government and holding them accountable for whatever failed policies that they are or are not implementing to help their own people. The Venezuelan people have, in large, declared who their leader is. They have elected Maduro, and that's who they wanted. Now, one thing that I think is really exciting and is that despite all the aggression, despite all the coups and invasions and the latest invasion, you know, in May from uh, launch from Colombia, the people continue to be strong and the government continues to stand. And that's only a testament that the people trust themselves, that they have made their choice and that's who they're supporting. Now, I can't say that for us in Canada. You know, we recently had the Wasuwetan people being aggressed by the Canadian government despite all the talks of reconciliation with silent invasion into their land, sending RCMP, um, you know, to basically bulldoze their choice to put a pipeline through their territory. So in, in many ways, I think imperialism and colonization uh, continues today, and they take many forms. Can we talk about us, the workers, because bo both you and I are workers, and we have seen that change only comes from the people. When the people speak, when the people act, things happen. You know, governments usually tend to follow. Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that, you know, Canada has, you know, is a colonial state and we see it continuing to displace indigenous communities within Canada uh, around, you know, imposing pipelines and imposing, you know, mega projects, whether it's mining on communities through what many consider to be uh, lack of, you know, adequate and real consultation is, is no surprise that that's what happens in, in Latin America when multinational corporations, whether it's Canadian or American, go down to, you know, the South, whether it's Latin America, Africa or other countries, particularly where there's indigenous people of color, brown, black, where the, the idea is that, you know, those people don't have any agency. They don't know what's good for them. They don't understand and that, you know, we from the North, uh, corporations, you know, capitalism is what people want and need. And it's what's going to make you better. And it's what's going to, you know, give you everything you need, all the materialism in the world. And I think that's where the challenge lies is when communities, and we see it across the region where communities organize, whether it's in El Salvador, whether it's in Honduras, whether it's in Brazil, to unite, to protect their land, to protect their natural resources, to protect their sovereignty, their democracy. Um, there is a massive aggression by the Canadian, you know, the Canadian apparatus or the, the, the American apparatus, which is the war machine, the economic system, uh, in order to ensure that, that, you know, there's minimal opposition to, you know, foreign policies that tend to benefit predominantly multinational corporations in the north whether in the u.s canada and the european and our stock markets because you know unfortunately our economies are based on exploitation of natural resources of people in the global south indigenous communities uh and that's the you know to maintain the lifestyle we have to continue to do that and it has a humongous impact on people and on workers but i do see it and we see it with you know things from like black you know movements like the black lives matter or indigenous movements in canada who have been rising up 
for you know many decades now, centuries, but most recently where we see them having an impact, where you know Black Lives, for example, are rising up, you know, all across the Americas in order to demand you know the end to you know institutional racism, discrimination, violence against people of color, black people, and they're having impacts. They're having you know humongous policy impacts. Uh, impacts on the media, impacts on how people view police violence against, you know, innocent uh, people of color. And so you, what you realize is that, you know, the only way in order to hold governments, uh, which in many cases are co-opted by the corporate system, is to have mass movements of peaceful people on the streets on an ongoing basis, supporting, pushing, educating we are living in a very difficult situation. We have an environmental crisis, we have an economic crisis, we have a health crisis, and we see that the capitalist system, at least, is failing us on all those fronts. And I think, you know, there's nothing more clear today than the United States and the example of its, you know, immense failure uh, under COVID, right? Its inability to provide some basic support for the majority of Americans is in itself, you know, a travesty but it's also a testament to the failure of the capitalist system and the neoliberal model, which, you know, is what the United States and obviously Canada, unfortunately, continues to push forward uh, globally. Well, I think we, we must take uh, comfort in the people. As you say, the movements, you know, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, which has really sparked since the death of George Floyd. Uh, but, but that movement began 12 years ago. Most people don't realize that that movement began 12 years ago. And sometimes we have to be prepared to do work that, you know, for the long term. You know, we can't uh, have overnight success but if we are committed to transform our society we can all do it so what inspires you what are you excited to see unfold as a result of all these challenges because challenges also give us resilience absolutely and i think under COVID, we we kind of see right you see a pandemic that has caused you know great suffering but at the same time it's created an immense opportunity in terms of for example we realize now the need for you know a universal public health system is something that is a basic requirement if we're to live in a community in a society uh, because we have an impact on everybody you know to speak about um, public health in the past would have been you know kind of odd and most people were saying that we need to push for you know private um, healthcare system so you know, crisis, as you said, opens up the doors for being able to solve some of these extreme issues. Who would ever have expected that the Canadian government can come up with programs to support millions of workers in a very short period of time when it always told us that there was no money for people, there's no money for workers? Who would ever envision that, you know, people who work in supermarkets, you know, in all the front lines would be considered heroes, you know, doctors, nurses, uh, there were people who, you know, people who work in supermarkets are considered, you know, sort of unskilled, unnecessary labor, but today they are considered heroes. So it definitely there's a, an ability and a, and, a, and a change, a paradigm change in how we, in how we view the world and how we, and the solutions that can be put forward. So it's clear that when there is a need, there is definitely the will, there's the financial capital to support and the key that we have to do as communities democratic participatory is to get engaged and to be able to move our politicians our policies beyond asking for you know what i would say you know minimal requirements but we should actually be asking for you know the world because we know that it's possible we've seen it under the canadian government who you know who has, who has gone 
under uh, COVID and, and brought up millions of dollars to support workers when in the past it wasn't very impossible to get any money for it. You know, we was cutting back um, employment insurance and all that kind of stuff. There is the possibility to now bring solutions to a lot of the issues that we've been talking about for many decades. Thank you so much for being with us. I always say community is immunity. So thank you so much for being <laughs> such a community promoter and activist. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. It's a pleasure. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com. Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.